Our text this week, out of the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, Behold your king with jewels in his crown. Starting in verse 1, The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach and Damascus, its resting place, for the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. Also against Hamath, which borders it, and against Tyra and Sidon, though they be very wise, for Tyra built herself a tower, heaped up silver like dust, and gold like the mire in the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her out, he will destroy her power in the sea, and she will be devoured by fire. So now in context, Zechariah is writing this back at a time when Israel, children of Israel had recently, some of them anyway, had recently come back from Persia, uh, which was Babylon. Babylon was taken over by Persia, the Medo-Persians, and the Persians allowed us to go back after 70 years of captivity in Babylon. And we began to rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. And the walls of Jerusalem had not yet been rebuilt during Zechariah's day. They didn't take place till after his death. And so somewhere in this time period, the temple is being rebuilt, the city is still being rebuilt, but still not much of anything, still not much of a nation, still not much of a capital. And whether the temple was finished by chapter 9 or not, not exactly sure, but it's still within that time frame, either just recently finished or still being constructed. Still very few people in Jerusalem, very few had come back, the still majority living in Persia. When he writes this prophecy, and yet it is believed that this prophecy does not take place for his time, but for still several years after this, because we have, again, in the sequence events as outlined in the prophecies of Daniel, we had Babylon, and then we had Medo-Persia, and that's, again, Medo-Persia is the time period where Zechariah is writing, and then after the Medo-Persians, the Greeks come in and are conquered, the Greeks conquer the Medo-Persians, and many other lands as well. And the first main uh, ruler over the Greeks that began that conquest was Alexander the Great. It existed before then, but not as, again, the power that it became. And so Alexander expanded its territory, conquering Medo-Persia and many other places. And a lot of people believe that this is what is being prophesied here. So again, still several years beyond Zechariah's time, so a prophecy. And he describes these cities, and these are the cities in order that Alexander conquered. After conquering Medo-Persia, he began... So Medo-Persia would have been uh, still um, west and even northwest of Israel. And then Alexander begins conquering, coming over the Fertile Crescent and conquering Damascus, which is north and even the north, little northeast rather, I should have said earlier, east, northeast, uh, Medo-Persia. So Damascus, a little northeast, and conquering and coming over. And then Tyra to the northwest portion of Israel on the sea. And then continue the conquering down as the next verses will, will continue to tell us. Now, very interesting here, it says about Tyra that it's very strong. It built this tower, heaped up silver like dust and gold like streets, and yet it gets cast out by her power in the sea. Now, Tyra was like a, an island city. Uh, and so it was very well fortified. It was built upon a solid rock, about two, uh, two and a half miles in size, and uh, strong walls upon this firm rock of an island, and so very hard to conquest, conquer. Had good feet, feet, fleet of uh, navy ships. It also had a lot of 
weaponry for its time. It had catapults inside the city that any ships or anyone would try and get in, get catapult over, and lots of means to, to dump things over, and, and divers that would go and, and protect the, the, um, the, 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 the island, the city, from any attacks. And it was attempted to be conquered by the Syrians. Uh, I think it was a five-year siege, and they weren't able to conquer it. And then it was attempted to be conquered by uh, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. I think it was a 13-year siege that they weren't able to. But Alexander comes in and in seven months conquers the city. Really amazingly, no one thought it could be done. The, the people in Tyra mocked them and said, no, you're not going to be able to conquer us in the sea. And, and yet the Bible here describes he will destroy them and devour it by fire. And he did that. Uh, slaughtered basically everybody, took a few people, slaves, burned the, the city down, just as prophesied. Really amazing. And that's not where it ends. That's just the first four verses, and it continues. Ashkelon shall see it and fear. Gaza also shall be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. A mixed race shall settle in Ashdod and will cut off the pride of the Philistines. I will take away the blood from its mouth and the abominations from between its teeth. But he who remains, even he shall be for our God and shall be a leader like Judah and Ekron like a Jebusite. So as he was doing the conquest, coming across again from uh, the northern portion and then came down along the Mediterranean Sea, coming down towards Gaza and towards Eshkelon and, and uh, um, Ekron, I think the other city there mentioned. Um, yeah, so he goes and conquers those cities and where the Philistines were, and it says they feared. Well, they saw Tyra fall, and they were afraid. They thought, well, they're not going to conquer Tyra. Tyra's going to put them off. We've got a little bit of a reprieve here. He's going to get stuck up there for five years, 13 years, whatever. We can, we can wait him out. And, of course, again, as I mentioned, seven months, he conquers Tyra, and then he comes down and begins conquering these cities. And where, in, in difference to what the Babylonians did and the Medo-Persians did when they conquer an area, uh, they often allowed the local king to remain king. He just became a vassal of, of the king. He became a vassal of Nebuchadnezzar or whoever. But he allowed the government to continue to remain as long as they paid their taxes and as long as they obeyed and went along with the government. But Alexander didn't do that. He took their kings out, slaughtered the king. I think it was the king of Gaza. He dragged through the streets behind a chariot and then and took out most of the people and then brought in a different people. As it says here, it shall not be inhabited, shall take away, um, um, a mixed race, a different race, will settle in Ashdod. And that's exactly what he did. He took the Philistines out and moved a different people group in conquering and changing the whole landscape. And as it goes on at the end, it says, that it shall be for our God, even who remains like a leader in Judah, and Ekron like a Jebusite. Well, the Jebusites, that was the city that Jerusalem gets renamed when uh, David conquered it. It was originally the Jebusite city. And, uh, and yet they become basically absorbed into Israel, the Jebusites. And that's what happened with those then who were living in Ashdod. By the time we get to the time of the Gospels, we don't have the Philistines there anymore. We don't have them as a problem. We don't have uh, those areas. They became uh, absorbed into Israel and accepting of the faith and those who remained 
and became basically a part of Israel, uh, starting even back during the time of the Maccabees. So he's conquering, he's conquering, it's now by going over the north from the east, over to the west, and then to the southeast, he basically has Jerusalem surrounded. What remains is Israel, Judah, surrounded. I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. No more shall an oppressor pass through them, for now I have seen with mine eyes. So it's Alexander conquering, so he goes down to Gaza, and then he continues over into Egypt, conquers Egypt, and then builds the city of uh, Alexandria. But then as he comes back and passes through Jerusalem, he doesn't conquer Jerusalem. He doesn't do what he did to all those other cities. He doesn't lay siege to Jerusalem. And Josephus even writes that uh, Alexander came towards Jerusalem and the Kohen Gadol at the time came out to greet him and meet him in his dress in with the breastplate and the mitre and the garments and the bells and the pomegranates. And everyone else in Jerusalem came out as well, dressed in white, like the rest of the Levites. And the whole city comes out to meet him and greet him. And when Alexander sees them, he bows down before the Kohen Gadol. And someone asks him, what are you doing bowing down to this man? And he says, I, I'm not bowing down to the man, I am bowing down to the name, the God, on his forehead, on the, on the mitre, holiness to the Lord. And he said, in a dream I had, I saw a man dressed like this, and he told me to go, and I would conquer, and that I would be victorious. And Jerusalem is left in peace. Jewish people were able to continue their, and whether that story is actually as it is written by Josephus and in the Talmud, uh, or just explaining why he didn't conquer, but he didn't conquer, he didn't go, and he didn't change our religion, he didn't dispose us. We were allowed to continue our faith, we were allowed to continue our worship, we were allowed to continue our temple, we were allowed to continue our services. Again, everything all around he conquers. Everything all around he begins to Hellenize and bring in Greek culture and Greek language and Greek religion. But he leaves Israel alone, as it says here. God's speaking, I will camp around my house because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. And today, even today, uh, it said that uh, Alexander was so appreciated for that that children, Jewish, children, Jewish parents began to name their children Alexander. And I, I know at least two, I'm thinking off the top of my head, two very close friends, Jewish who, whose names are Alexander, even now or over 2,000 some hundred years later. Why would a Jewish person name a kid Alexander? And after a Greek leader from so long ago, not a Bible name, and yet it's still not an uncommon name within Judaism. And then God, so miraculously, as Zechariah wrote in these first eight verses, it came to pass. In the Bible, again, the book of Daniel, prophesied that the Greeks would come and that a Greek leader would come and a mighty one and he would, in the strength of his power, be broken. And he did. 
And he gave that peace. And we continued with that peace under the Greeks for many, many years afterwards. Kings after Alexander continued to allow us to have that freedom and have that peace. And it's not until many Greek kings later that we come along to Antiochus Epiphanes, towards the end of the Greek reigning of its power, where he begins to outlaw Jewish worship, outlaw circumcision, outlaw Sabbath keeping, bringing Zeus into the temple and taking the Jewish biblical pieces of furniture out of the temple. But they were there up until that point. Again, Antiochus Epiphanes is way down the line from Alexander. They're under Greek rulership for a long, long time before any change takes place. And then that was short-lived anyway because the Maccabees come and conquer him. That's where we get the, the Hanukkah story from. And they liberate the temple and go back to being able to worship. And so miraculously, really miraculously, as these various nations and strong cities, rather not nations, but strong cities, thus representing their nations, are, were conquered, Damascus, Tyra, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, conquered, 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 Egypt, new city, Alexandria. He leaves in the middle of all that. Medo-Persia to the other side, desert to the south. He leaves Israel alone. That's really strange. It's kind of, it wouldn't make sense for this conqueror who's conquering and conquering to conquer everything all around. Greece is to the northeast, Medo-Persia to the northwest, to the straight north, Egypt to the south, and the west. doesn't make sense to conquer everything all around and to leave Israel alone. Other than God prophesied it, and at that time, we were living and following the word of God. And that's exactly what happened. God prophesied it, and it happened. God's word is accurate. God's word is true. We see this in the prophecies, thus we can believe in the promises. We see as God's word has come to pass in the past, thus we know the prophecies for our present and our future will also come to pass. Just as God's promises have been fulfilled and fulfilled and fulfilled in other people's lives, we know that God's promises will be fulfilled in our lives as well. And just as surely as he predicted this regarding Alexander, just as surely God has a heaven in store for you and me. And this is not where the prophecy stops. It continues. In verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a cult, the foal of a donkey. Well, the well-known Bible prophecy regarding the Messiah would come and come humbly, but as a king and riding on a donkey. It's quoted in two of the Gospels, this particular text. And it says here that, Behold, your king is coming. So it's still future tense for Zechariah's day. It was still future tense for verses 1 through 8, talking about Alexander. And it was. So after Alexander, after the Greeks, after Antiochus Epiphanes, then comes the Romans. Even during the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Romans were starting to come in. The Romans come in. And then we get the gospel account of Yeshua coming. Now, as you see pictures of uh, 
Mary and Joseph leaving Nazareth to come down for the census in uh, Bethlehem. You know, we see them, uh, Mary riding on a donkey. Now, I looked in the Bible. I didn't see Mary on a donkey in the Bible. It doesn't mention donkey in the Bible regarding Mary riding there. But she's like, I mean, I, I, how would a pregnant lady get from Babel, uh, Beth, uh, Nazareth down to Bethlehem? She must have been probably on a donkey, right? You know, I don't know. Maybe she had uh, a Toyota, I don't know. But something, somehow she got from up there, down there, riding on something. That'd be a long walk for a pregnant lady. Uh, so maybe it was a donkey. So if so, he came into this world on a donkey, and then this particular prophecy being fulfilled as he's leaving this world. Just days before his death, he tells his disciples, just before the Passover, he tells the disciples to go to Bethany, which is just right over the other side of the hill, the Mountain of Olives from Jerusalem, to go and you'll find a cult. Go and bring it to me. And the owner asks why. Tell him your master needs it. And they go and they do. They find the cult the donkey tied up. And the person comes, what are you doing? And they tell him and he lets him take the donkey. And Yeshua gets on that donkey. Rides up over the Mount of Olives. A crowd begins to follow. A crowd begins to see this. And no doubt they're thinking of Zechariah 9. Our king is finally coming. Our deliverer is finally here. He's coming and he's riding on a donkey. He's riding on a, uh, on a young colt. He's riding in to Jerusalem. Humbly and just. Having salvation. Lowly. This is our king. And they're excited. And they begin to throw palm branches down and cut them down and throw them down. And they begin to take their jackets off and their outer garments and throw them down so they can ride over them, kind of like a red carpet entrance, giving them a, a welcome into the city. And they're praising him and singing and shouting hosannas, praise to the Lord, this is it, this is it, finally. And Yeshua comes up over the crest of the Mount of Olives and he sees the temple there across the Kidron Valley and he looks out over the white stone walls of the temple glistening in the sun and he begins to cry and he begins to weep and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, oh how I wish to bring you in as a mother hen under her wings but you would not. In the midst of all this rejoicing, in the midst of all the praising, the whole parade stops as the leader is crying and weeping. And the mood changes. And as Yeshua prophesied, not one stone would be left upon another but that all would be cast down. And today we have the remains of those temple stones cast down over the western wall, laying there for us to see and touch and see the fulfillment of the prophecy. And so Yeshua comes humbly riding on this donkey as a humble king. 
And I don't know what type of donkey he rode on, but there is a particular breed of donkey, as pictured here, that has a cross tattooed on their backs. Every single one of them, the mother and the baby and the whole entire breed has a cross emblazed on their back. And maybe that's the type of donkey that he rode on as he was riding towards Jerusalem and just days afterwards taken and had a cross laid on him, forced to carry outside the city walls to be killed. Amazing prophecy. Right in line after Alexander, then Yeshua would come and come as a king, but come as a humble king, lowly, riding on a donkey, having salvation. His name is right there imprinted in the verse itself. Yeshua, our salvation. Coming not as a king to conquer with sword and battering rams, but lowly riding on a donkey. What kind of promotion is that? What kind of a political ad would that be for an election? <laughs> Our candidate is the humblest one there is. He's lowly. He's not going to be riding on a white horse. He's not going to be coming in with an army. He's going to be riding in on a donkey. The Bible tells it like it is. What other God calls himself lowly? Is that the gods of this world? The Thors of this world, they come across as lowly? Or any other created God or false God? But our king came lowly, riding on a donkey towards the city, without an army, without weapons, not seeking military conquest. Exactly as prophesied, so it came to be. Verse 10, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. He came again, not call, calling for a weaponry conquest, a conquest with weapons, but for calling for peace. As the angel said, announcing his birth, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. People say, well, where is the peace since he came? Been lots of wars since that time. Well, that's not the kind of peace he was talking about. Peace in our hearts. Peace in our souls. Peace regardless of the troubles around us. Peace I give unto you. My peace he leaves with us. Not as the world give it a peace that passes understanding, a peace that can't be reasoned, a peace that doesn't make sense. A peace in the midst of troubles. Not a peace because there is no troubles. 
a peace that is enduring and lasting from generation to generation. A message that would be taken from sea to shining sea. Well, maybe it doesn't say shining in there, but from sea to sea. That'd be a good song, right? <laughs> sea to shining sea. From the ends to the ends of the world. From the river to the ends of the world. It's an amazing prophecy. It's amazing they didn't lock Zechariah up. Here we're hardly a nation. We don't even have walls around our city. Might not even have a currency yet. Certainly didn't have an army yet. And you're saying we're going to have a king and he's going to be a lowly king? And yet he's going to have a message of peace that's going to go around the world? Even our own people haven't come back to Jerusalem, and yet this is going to go around the world? And yet it has. From sea to sea to sea to sea to sea, whatever seas there are in this world, the gospel is going. On every continent, in every country, maybe not legally in some countries, but in every country. There is some believer somewhere sharing under death threats, in prison, as martyrs. The gospel marches forward and continues on. Amazing prophecy. A lowly, humble king who dies. And the message of peace inside our hearts, inside our minds, freeing us from guilt, freeing us from burdens of cares and worries of our past. Peace in the forgiveness. Peace because we have salvation, not saved from some mighty ruler, but saved from ourselves, saved from temptation, saved from the punishment of sin, saved from the power of sin, delivered in his strength. That gospel message has gone around the world prophesied in a city that was still mostly broken down. From a city that did not have a king, that did not have a world influence, and yet spoke in any way and come to pass. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I declare that I will restore double to you. Our time has been taken away. Our riches have been taken away. Our city has been taken away. Our kingdom has been taken away. And God promises, I will give a double to you. What Jerusalem, what Nebuchadnezzar took from you, I will give you double. And God has. O oh, prisoners of hope, you prisoners will be set free. And whatever prison you're in tonight, whether a prison of fear, anxiety, read the news and hear about things coming around in the world around us, in this country, fearful of what's coming next, and I have no doubt it's going to get worse. We haven't seen anything yet. 
But we don't have to fear. We can have peace in our hearts anyway. As prisoners of hope. Or a prisoner of some sin, some habit, some inclination, some evil desire, some addiction. He can set you free right now through the blood of his covenant, through his promise that he has made to us and sealed with his blood. We can be set free. Free from the guilt of our past. Free from the mistakes we've made. Free from the bitterness, the anger, the revenge. Free from the despair. The depression. The doubt. The unbelief. We can be set free right now. Whatever's holding you in, whatever is you boxed in, whatever is keeping you from being liberated, cry out to the Lord. Claim his blood. Claim his sacrifice in your behalf. Claim victory over the temptations. Claim victory over the devil because the Messiah has won the battle. He is a living king. He not only died for our sins, but he's been raised from the dead. And he's a living king. A victorious king. And he lives and reigns. Hold on by hope and be set free. As we walk through this world, we're not staying here forever. We're just passing through. God will restore double to you, whatever's been taken away. Verse 13, For I bent Judah my bow, lifted the bow, bow of Ephraim, and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and made you like a sword of a mighty man. God lifts us up. Not with a sword in our hands. Not a sword of war. But the Bible, the word of God. Sharper than any sword. Cutting through the demons and the devil. Making us a mighty man. Mighty conquerors. This king who came lowly as our example, as we humble ourselves before him and surrender to him, we become more than mighty conquerors in him. Not in our own strength, but in his power, his victory. Once prisoners, but now set free and made as mighty men. Once under the control of Satan and under his power, under the control of our natural natures to do wrong, we've been set free. And we've become mighty men and women in him. Men and women of valor. Victorious. Going from victory to victory. The Lord will be seen over them and an arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will blow the trumpet in the shofar and go with whirlwinds from the south. He's going to come again, blowing the shofar, sounding the alarm at the last trump. The Lord will come from heaven with all of his angels, 
riding not on a donkey this time, but riding on white horses, coming and calling forth the dead. The Lord himself shall come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, with the shofar of God, and the dead in Messiah will rise. The prisoners of the grave will rise first. And we which are alive and remain, who have endured to the end, will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. As mighty men and women, victorious over the corruption of this body, victorious of the mortality of our flesh, victorious over sin and temptation. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We will ascend with the angels and meet the Lord in the clouds. He's coming. He will be seen over them. His hour goes forth like lightning. As lightning comes from the east and to the west, so also shall be the coming of the Son of Man. He'll blow the trumpet with a whirlwind. As a whirlwind, the chariot and whirlwind picked up Elijah and took him to heaven. The angels will come like a whirlwind and gather us up and take us to heaven. The Lord of hosts will defend them and they shall devour and subdue with slingshots. They shall drink and roar as with wine. They shall be filled with the blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. The wicked will be destroyed. The Lord will defend us and devour them. And the Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. The sheep will be gathered in. For they shall be like jewels of a crown, lifted like a banner over his head. He calls us his jewels. He takes you and he claims you as his own, precious in his sight. As a gem found in dirt, covered in mud and muck, and he cleans and washes, chisels away the rough edges, polishes it, sharpens it, rubs it until it glistens, removes all the dross off of us, and then places us in his crown as special jewels of his victory, of his conquest, well, Alexander might have put on his crown, oh, Tyre and Sidon and Ashkelon and Gaza. But God takes your name and places it on his crown. He's engraved us into the palms of his hands. He'll never forget you. Everything he does, he thinks of you. And he engraves you onto his forehead into his mind, into his thoughts, and that he's thinking of you all the time. You are his precious gem. Amen. 
no matter what the world says about you, no matter what the world thinks of you, no matter the reality of your past, no matter the weaknesses of your flesh, no matter that you are nothing without him, because of him, because of the blood of his covenant that he has paid for you, you are more valuable than the entirety of the universe to him. That is the price he paid in putting his life on the line, in coming from heaven to this earth and fighting the devil. We were the playing chips that he played with. His throne was the playing chips that he played with, that he gambled in that fight with the devil. If the devil would have won, he would not have only gained this earth, he would have gained the throne of God. He would have defeated God. God would have not only lost this earth, he would have lost everything. That is how valuable you are. That is the price that was paid for you. Yeshua told the parable of a man, and he saw a pearl, and he went and he sold everything he had to buy that pearl of great price. He has sold everything for you. You are that pearl. You are that pearl of great price in his eyes. And he lifts you up and places you upon his brow, upon his crown, above his head, as a banner for all the universe to see. Look at what I have done. Creation was easy, but look at what I have done. I have taken what was in rebellion. I have taken what was the devil's. And I have redeemed it. Look at the prisoners that I have set free. It's easy to turn dust into flesh. For God, anyway. It's a whole other story. To take a carnal heart that is bent on enmity against God and to turn it to one that is surrendered to God. The one that is addicted to the corruption of this world, that hates sin and loves God. That is a miracle of God. That is placed upon the banner. Come and see my children. Come and see the grace, the power of grace to transform lives to change lives, more than just to forgive, but to change, to radically change, to make all things new. That is the power of God. That is the power of a humble, lowly king riding on a donkey. So lowly he left the throne in heaven to take on flesh, to be rejected, misunderstood, beaten, spit upon, and abused. but who has the power to change, to set us free, and to give us peace in our hearts, to make us mighty men and women for him. For how great is the goodness, and how great is its beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive, and new wine, the young woman, women.
So the men liked the bread and the women liked the wine. But notice it's new wine. Hey, it's not old fermented stuff. It's not from a basement somewhere. It's not aged vintage stuff. No, it's new wine. Freshly squeezed grape juice. The blood of the grape. Fresh and pure. Like Yeshua's blood of the covenant. And the grain, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. How great and goodness. How great is its beauty, the land that God has in store for us. The new heavens and the new earth with the grain and the vineyards and the tree of life and the river of life. With the mansion prepared for us in the new Jerusalem, in the city of our God, and the country home in the woods. How great and how beautiful. God has in store for us. And so in this one little chapter, in 17 verses, he's taken us from Zechariah's day to events that happened soon thereafter, Alexander coming, conquering all around Jerusalem, but miraculously leaving Jerusalem and Israel alone and protecting it. To the time of the Romans and the coming of the Messiah, to his lowly existence, and even a specific event of him riding on a donkey, coming as king, riding into Jerusalem. To the victories he does in our lives, giving us peace, setting us free, making us mighty men and women for him. counting us as his own, raising us from the dead, coming in the second coming with the shout of the trumpet, with the voice of the trumpet, with the sound of the trumpet, of the shofar, and his deliverance, and on into the new heavens and new earth. The whole history covered in 17 verses. Amazing. And just as the first things have already been fulfilled, the accounts of Alexander, the accounts of Yeshua coming, the accounts of him setting people free, prisoners free, and giving them peace in their hearts, all have come to pass. And so also will be his coming on the clouds with the shofar and the new heavens and the new earth. And so in a moment when we pray, whichever area applies to you tonight, whether you want to claim his promise that you are his pearl, that you are his gem, that you are his child, that you are precious in his sight. And thank him for that. In a moment when we pray, you'll have an opportunity to do that and to thank him. And ask him to give you his Holy Spirit to shine as a banner for him, as a witness for him to all around that can see that he has set you free. May you shine for him in this dark world. 
or in a moment if you are a prisoner of anything there's any sin in your life any area of your life that's not surrendered to God maybe it was surrendered yesterday but today it's not any area one area one thing you're lacking one thing you haven't surrendered to him anything you're a prisoner to any habit any addiction any grievance any despair maybe you're free in mind and heart until one name comes to mind and it just blows your day surrender it to the Lord that the chains are set free that the chains are broken that liberation comes to you prisoner of hope maybe you're bound by fears or guilt Surrender it to the Lord and claim the blood of his covenant in your behalf. Third, if you want to praise him that he left heaven for you as a humble king coming and taking on flesh, knowing your sufferings, knowing your temptations, knowing what it's like to be rejected, knowing what it's like to suffer loss, knowing what it's like to grieve, knowing what it's like to suffer pain and bleed and cry. And if you want to thank him for becoming flesh, humbling himself, lowering himself, riding on a donkey, if you want to thank him for that, in a moment when we pray, enter into his suffering with him. Enter into communion with him. Unite with him as he is united with us. If you want to thank him for fulfilling his promises in the past and these prophecies that fulfilled in Alexander's life and in the Maccabees and thank him for the past claim that as an assurance for the future and a moment when we pray you can do that if you want to claim the promise of being made a mighty man or woman for him claim his promise of great beauty of the new heavens and new earth, the fields of grain and the vineyards to eat from. And you want to ask for endurance to endure to the end and lay hold of the promise of heaven because of his salvation that has been delivered to us. In a moment when we pray, you can do that. Or if you need peace, and he's come to declare peace, that he's come to give peace. And you need peace in your heart. You're troubled about something. You're worried about something, maybe financial difficulty, maybe a health situation, maybe a social problem in your life. Maybe, again, you're fearing what's going to happen in this country within the next few months. And you need God's peace. You need to trust him. You need more faith. You need more belief. Praise him that he's given us a measure of faith and that he will give us more faith as we ask for it. If you're needing more faith to have that peace, that trust in him, to abide in him, in a moment when we pray, ask for God to give you his peace. So if any of those areas apply to you, or maybe some area, some other area, 
That's fine too. Let us join together in prayer. Let God do his mighty, powerful, fabulous work in our lives. Our Lord and our God, ruler of the universe, we praise your name. You are absolutely amazing. You know the end from the beginning. You've seen it down through the ages. You've depicted it over and over and over again in chapters in the Bible. And it's so accurate all the time. These futuristic prophecies read like a, like a history book today. Absolutely amazing. And just as so as you knew about Alexander, who cares about Alexander? You knew us. You know us. You know our past and you know our future. You know the plans you have for us, plans to prosper us and not to harm us. Lord, fulfill those promises in our lives. Work your salvation in our lives. Coming, thank you for coming to this earth and thank you for coming again. Make us ready. Give us your grace. Brace us for what's coming upon this world. And may we shine as lights in the darkness, as banners over your head, as pearls in your crown. Hold us up in the evils of this world, in the corruption of this world, in the falling apart of this world. And surround your people. Protect your people. And deliver us, set us free from our prisons and bring us into the new Jerusalem in Yeshua's holy name. Amen.